Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 3, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Krasnowska. We have a special episode today, another episode from our recordings here at the Alliance for in- Academic Internal Medicine at the AIM Week 23. Uh, we get to actually sit down with our guests in person, which has been so fun. We are talking about best practices for inclusive interviewing. And before we talk more about that and our guests, Ira, could you remind the listeners what we do on our show? Sure, Molly. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to, again, inspire the next generation of medical educators. And we are pumped because we are sitting down with Dr. Dow, Chang, and Lee to talk about exactly what Molly mentioned earlier, inclusive interview practices, but also all along the interview season, before the interviews happen, in the interview, and what happens after interviews. So lots of pearls to take home. This episode is a quick turnaround episode, so it will not be available for CME, but most of our episodes are available for free CME. You can check out our website, which has been recently redone. It's beautiful. Lots of great information on there, show notes, transcripts. And we do also have a Patreon, so we very much appreciate your support. Highly pleasing to the eye, that website. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So without further ado, let's let's get get to it. it. So excited to be joining with everyone today, and so nice to be sitting down in person here at uh, AIM23. Let's see, Dr. Dow, can we start with you? Are you okay if we call you Tony for this recording? Yes. Wonderful. Um, And do you mind sharing a one-liner about yourself, just a little bit about where you are professionally and then something outside of medicine as well? Sure. Uh, my name is Tony Dow. Uh, my pronouns are he and him. I'm an associate program director at Washington University in St. Louis, um, and I really uh, enjoy biking around St. Louis. So, Wonderful. And Dr. Chang, is it okay if we call you Chelsea? Definitely. And Chelsea, could you also share a bit about yourself and something you like to do? Yes, thank you. I am an associate professor of internal medicine at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, which is in South Texas. And I am a triathlete, and I just did my most recent triathlon this weekend on an Ironman in Galveston. Wow, amazing. Congrats. (laughs) And Dr. Lee, um, are you okay with us calling you Sunny for this recording? Absolutely. Perfect. And could we hear from you as well? Sure. Uh, My name is Sunny Lee. Um, I am an associate professor in both internal medicine and pediatrics, uh, so MedPeace trained. I'm currently the internal medicine program director at Loma Linda in California, um, and uh, I am not the athlete that Chelsea is, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I pretend to be by following my daughter uh, while she plays softball, so uh, so that's that's my favorite thing to do. So, Well, for all of you all, we're so excited to be sitting down in person uh, in Austin and wondering if y'all can share your favorite part of maybe joining AIM this year or kind of being a part of the Alliance in general. Sure. So uh, I had joined AIM a couple years ago when I became an APD. Um, and then uh, my program director encouraged me to apply for a task force. And so then I signed up for actually the interviews task force and got in. And it's been really good meeting other people from throughout the institution and um, or actually throughout AIM and just kind of meeting people and kind of learning new ideas and sharing it with my program. 
Yeah, similar experience. I just really enjoy getting to meet people from all across the United States that have this passion for education. And um, I've gotten to do workshops with people from all across the U.S. and just learn about all the amazing ideas out there. Uh, very similar. Um, I've been part of AIM, I think, since 2006. Uh, and my, one of my favorite parts of coming to meetings like this year and any year is uh, collaborating uh, and meeting people from other places. And, um, and, and, and you come away with so many great ideas that you have to kind of temper yourself a little bit uh, <laughs> when you go home. But, uh, but that's one of my favorite parts is to get, feel that energy that then to, number one, that we're all in it together. But uh, number two, there's so many great ideas that we haven't thought of yet. And so, so that's, that's one of my favorite parts of coming to these meetings. Fantastically. I've, I've been very impressed with the energy and just reaching out cold, emailing you guys <laughs> and very appreciative of your sharing your your knowledge around this and what you've prepared for the workshops today. Um, so in the interest of time, we'll jump into a case. Okay, let's talk about Sylvie's case from Cashlock Memorial. So uh, Sylvie has just taken on the role of program director for internal medicine at the residency at Cashlock. And she has set a goal for herself in terms of improving the diversity within her program. It's one of her real privileges and priorities um, to make this kind of part of her vision as program director. And she wants to start with reviewing the interview process and seeing what changes can be made to really support inclusivity. And maybe we'll start with Tony, you know, thinking about uh, kind of Sylvie's approach even well before interview season um, and her goals around kind of uh, increasing the inclusivity. I wonder how you would advise her or how you would kind of um, help support making uh, DEI a priority in recruitment for her. Sure. And so I think uh, what's always interesting is like we always lump DEI together and it's always just like it always comes as a package. Um, but it's always kind of thinking about how diversity is really just like a time point. It's like a number. How many people do we have of each in, in our institution? Um, and so really kind of thinking that as like a metric of like, you know, where do we want to be? Um, but also thinking about that inclusion piece, like what does that actually look like? Um, and so a lot of us will kind of go back and think about, you know, what's our goal, what's our purpose of wanting a diverse workforce, and like how is that going to impact um, both our trainees as well as our, our community, um, and thinking about, you know, how can we set goals for for those, um, and then also thinking about, you know, demonstrating inclusion is really kind of like a throughout the year process, and so how can we show applicants who are applying. How can we show them that you know this is a great place to be, not just during recruitment, but all throughout the year? Um, and so really thinking about what's your strategy for the whole year, right? How are you going to demonstrate inclusion? And then for which groups are you really going to to try that for? Um, and that kind of goes back to like, you know, what are your initial goals? So well, thank you for highlighting that importance of sort of working through it well before the interview season. Um, once Sylvie and her group have decided what their metrics are that they want to really focus on, uh, and they've established some programs to try to support inclusivity throughout the year, how should she best communicate these to prospective applicants? Um, are there ways to improve visibility around this? Yeah, I think um, when you're doing something all throughout the year um, and you have kind of like your clear goals in mind, um, it's really easy to kind of just demonstrate during the interview day, like, hey, these are all of the things that we've accomplished. Um, a lot of programs who may not have the diversity metrics that they're looking for um, might want to just talk about like, you know, what their plan is and how they've done, um, kind of like how we show during our workshops, like, you know, this is the progress that we've made so far. We're not done yet. Um, but really sharing, you know, with the applicants, like these are all the steps that we've done 
Um, and really not thinking about like when they get here, like telling you what you're planning to do, just really showing them what you have done. Um, and so I think that's the easiest way of doing it. Um, obviously, a lot of us use social media to kind of explore all of these things and like show, but it's, it's really easy to kind of highlight things that you want them to see. And so just being able to sh demonstrate, you know, accomplishments that you've done. Um, and just, I think for the visibility portion, um, especially for um, people of, uh, like underrepresented in medicine or LGBTQI plus or inter international medical graduates. Um, it's really hard for people to see people like themselves at your institution. And so, you know, what we do is we, we make sure that we like highlight those faculty. Um, that way, like they know who's at our institution that, you know, you belong here too and that you should apply here. Um, so that's how I would help create visibility is just making sure that they know who to reach out to during that interview season. I love that, Tony. And my question, kind of to follow up on that, is, and Chelsea and Sunny, please weigh in as well, is when you're thinking about the, even the metrics and the programs and kind of defining uh, what your goals are, do you also make that process visible to the applicants? Like, we went through all of this and kind of came up with these goals, like, these are our program values, this is how we define diversity. Or do you move more into, and here's the success that we've had with the program, kind of practical for anyone listening out there hoping to increase their um, you know, inclusion. Yeah, so I'll speak more, speak more specifically for kind of like the work I do in my program. Uh, so I lead a program called OutMed, which is our LGBTQ plus organization. So what we do is I kind of talk about some of the programming that we've held and you know the number of people who are coming to this and how that impacts our community um, at the in, both within our residency program as well as within our school. And so uh, at least for LGBTQ plus applicants who may not feel comfortable coming to the Midwest um, and Missouri, um, it's really important to highlight you know, the community that we have here. And so I give them a very big open space to ask questions about what's it like to be out in St. Louis? What are the available options that we have here? Um, and that's, you know, I think a lot of times what people are thinking about. And so, and so I would say that's one example. And then uh, we have different groups um, that represent different um, like diversity. Um, and we have each of those groups kind of demonstrate what they're doing to um, impact, you know, women in the promotion process, getting hired after residency. Um, how are we supporting underrepresented people in medicine? Um, what does that support structure look like? And then we just share it with them. Right. I would add to that, that you know, the website is so often where that initial contact is made and where residents will go to learn about your program um, or applicants at that time. So really ensuring that your aims are clear, not only your general program aims and your values, but your metrics for selection of interviews. And are they are these required or are these recommended? Are they preferred? You know, just really review that literature so you have the, the clarity and that can help address some of the issues that all program leaderships and residents face with the application inflation and just dissatisfaction if there's not clarity from the program's perspective on, on who they're trying to recruit into their program. Amazing. And Chelsea, your workshop was specifically around the unique role of international medical graduates. Um, can you talk more about the unique role that IMGs are playing in providing medical care in the U.S., especially among internal medicine programs? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I think 
it just so your perspective on IMGs tends to depend on, you know, the environment that you've been in. And I, I personally trained at a residency that really didn't have very many IMGs. And then I moved into this leadership position now where I'm, I'm the assistant dean of GME of programs that are majority IMG. And so that's kind of where I come from today is, is being transplanted into this and learning about it through um, through getting to work with these wonderful programs. And I, I was shocked, and a lot of people are shocked to know that 25% of practicing physicians in the U.S. are IMGs. So one out of four every practicing physician of, of all specialties are international medical graduates. So it's a huge workforce that, that's really providing the quarter of the care in the U.S. And then with our, our group here with internal medicine, it's even more prevalent. Um, about 39 to 40% of practicing internal medicine are IMGs. And same thing with the incoming class. So this recent match season was also right at 40%. So it's a really large group. And so not only are they providing access to care, but there are some features that, that they especially excel in, you know, they're bringing this cultural competence, they're bringing proficiency in second languages, and they studies show that they tend to serve more of our rural underserved areas. So that's a, a huge need for the, the U.S. healthcare system. I was going to say, my, my personal experience was in residency. I trained with quite a few IMGs, and many of them had been practicing physicians in their home country for several years before they came. And so clearly they were much more prepared than I was coming straight out of med school. And, <laughs> Um, but it, it seems like there is still a, a challenge for them to match at some of the best programs because it hasn't been seen as a, a place to look at inclusivity as much. So I'm glad you're bringing some, some work towards this. Um, what are some um, best practices for training faculty before the interview day? Can you talk about the role of implicit bias training? Absolutely. I think this is definitely a, a field of ongoing research as far as what is effective, not only in the short term, but in the long term in changing our behaviors as faculty. I do want to highlight that AIM did a wonderful piece in 2022 on best practices for interviewing. Um, I know they've got QR codes all, all around this conference <laughs> yes. about this, these recommendations. They're very excellent, and they, they also have recommendations for the different groups that you may be trying to particularly recruit in your program, such as LGBTQ or IMG or URIM. And so there's a, a wealth of information there. Briefly, implicit bias training, the most common one, I think, is the Harvard IAT. It's free. It's very short in time. And we do know that it raises our awareness of our own biases. So it's a great starting point to, to looking at bias in your interview season and your faculty if you were just getting started. I was going to just add, because um, I totally agree with everything Chelsea just said, uh, but uh, I think the important thing to also realize for the audience is that just being aware is not enough. Right. Uh, we oftentimes think of our, uh, of, hey, let's do this IT and 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 so I'll be aware that's not enough there. You have to take an additional step to try to um, uh, uh to do more work on on that, so so uh, so while yes, I totally agree that in, in that the Harvard test is is a great start. Uh, it can't stop there, mm. um, and and like you said, there is a lot of ongoing research. So I don't know uh, if there's truly is a I don't know a best practice per se, uh, but but I think uh, but certainly to be to realize that to to be aware of what your implicit biases are. 
and then following up with how to um, combat that, I guess, if that makes sense. And I would love to hear more in terms of those best practices, thinking about like, is there things that you do at your institutions or maybe things that you presented as part of your workshops around uh, what can be done? I, before we launch into that, I did want to take a step back to hear maybe y'all's experience about how the inclusivity or the um, kind of uh, recruitment efforts that you do for faculty development and the visibility um, efforts also kind of land with applicants. Like, are, is there any data around the people who either match with you or uh, interview with you saying like, wow, I'm really impressed about the way, you know, Chelsea made me feel like I belong, you know, to use your term, uh, Sunny. Like, is there anything, do we have any data to say that, yes, this is a effective strategy or this worked well? So there was a paper um, published a couple years ago um, for kind of, exactly this topic for underrepresented in medicine um, applicants and how they viewed um, and they kind of highlight just like pre, during, and after the interview what really meant most to them um, and a lot of it kind of centered around just like you know what actual programs exist and then kind of like being reached out to you with like sincerity right like um, like during the interview day talking like is there really a future? And then being able to connect with the residents um, who are there who could actually give them like, you know, the inside scoop. I wonder if your programs are kind of using that work to say for our recruitment efforts or for our faculty development, whether it's months ahead of recruitment, weeks ahead, you know, we're gonna try and use some of those best practices. Is that something that feels familiar or is happening at your institutions? Yeah, we do faculty development like right before. Um, interview season starts and then also I think we'll get into like strategies later but kind of how we build in like our scoring system is trying to get rid of a lot of the added bias that would have come in and so we just kind of don't let it happen <laughs> um, and so as much as possible yeah <laughs> yeah I'll add to that it is required. I mean, we often go back to the ACGME for everybody in, in leadership, and it is one of the requirements that we have an ongoing systematic recruitment and retention of a diverse workforce. So it, it can help get your, your institutional leadership and your program leadership um, motivated too because of that requirement. And then you can, you know, jot down those those events that you held and, and screenshot that website and, and just get the credit for that work too in, in your accreditation status. So that's a, you know, a plus and, and something that the ACGME has added to to increase the, the likelihood of these happening. Yeah, I, I, I have a hard time getting all of my interviewers in one place. So our, our faculty development tends to be more year round um, and it has uh, uh, bits and pieces of all of these, uh, all these um, um, uh, topics in, in kind of on a year round basis. Uh, but for the, uh, for the interview itself or the interviewers themselves, uh, kind of like what Tony said, uh, it, uh, we try to make it so that they can't uh, with our with some of our forms and the scores that we the scoring rubrics that we have used uh, uh, to try to avoid some of that as well too. But and I think that's a perfect segue, Sunny, into uh, <laughs> using um, scripted questions and standardized interview questions. How how do you what are best practices for coming up with those and how do you sort of decide what those should be? Yeah, so I think uh, f we we all should start with. Um, 
who you're looking for uh, and and actually be, even before that, what your program and institution is about um, and utilizing, uh, say, for example, your mission statement um, and, and utilizing your mission statement to come up with some maybe key attributes that you're looking for um, that you want to measure in your um, in your interview process and then uh, developing questions based on those attributes uh, to uh, to to try to gauge that um, uh, in your in, in your applicants uh, as you interview them the idea of course is not to necessarily come up with a with a question that is um, that has a clear right or wrong answer right uh, because then it it may enhance this social desirability when they answer when the applicants answer questions so you want to ask it in a way that you can kind of really gauge what what they're about um, as well too, and so I know, um, uh, f- you know, for example, I think we've talked a little bit about you know either using behavior-based questions or situationally-based questions. Um, uh, that's a really great way so that it's not a it's not a clear-cut uh, answer that you're looking for or or that your applicants think that they're looking for, um, but uh, it's a great way to be able to gauge some of those attributes that you really want to get at. So for example, if one of the attributes you're looking for is reliability, you know, you may want to ask a question about um, uh, what that applicant may have done in the past that showed has shown that. So in the case of behavior-based question or a, uh, or a, a hypothetical situation, again, without a clear-cut right answer to try to gauge your applicant's um, um, intentions, I guess. And just to summarize that, so the behavioral question would be like, tell me about a time where you demonstrated reliability. And then the situational would be more of, if you were the yeah. person on this correct. team, that's, that's right. what would you do? Does that sound right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So, so the idea uh, with behavior-based questions, of course, is that the it's it's the idea that past behaviors predict future behaviors, uh, whereas situationally-based questions would is the uh, idea that intent uh, predicts future of behaviors. And in the end, all you're trying to get at with some of these behavior-based questions versus situationally-based questions is to try to get a sense of who this applicant's going to, what this applicant's going to do in your program um, based on that attribute that you're looking for. Um, and, and that's kind of what we're trying to get at in most of the cases when we're in, interviewing applicants, right? Uh, because we know their test scores, we know their uh, whatever, they, we know how well they can write or maybe not write it, they're using chat GPT. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, uh, using some of those questions like that, you can maybe try to help predict what they're going to do in your program and whether it aligns with your program's mission and values. I think there's a lot of these like funny Instagram like memes that come out. They're like, um, why are you rehashing my CV? Like I just sent it to you, right? Like, did you read it? And like, it's like, of course you read it. Right. Um, but then I think this is a way for us to kind of enhance like this interview process. So like, you know, I I have read your CV and now I want to know these other values. Do you share these values with our institution? Um, and so we actually do that where we split your CV grading um, during a different committee. That's like a different set of people who are grading your application. Um, and then we're looking for characteristics that also you know, are part of our values. Um, and that's a separate grading system. And then we have another grading system for the actual interview. Is like what you're saying in your application like really true with your intent and like fast behaviors? Um, and this may be a super novice question, but how does one try to reduce bias or kind of um, maybe uh, increase inclusivity within those type of questions? 
kind of as you are trying to create those questions, is it by basing it in the mission or the program goals? Or is there some other way that when you all are creating these questions, you're like, this is how we're going get to rid, get rid of bias as <laughs> right, much right. as possible? Uh, I'll speak for our program, and that's exactly what we did, because uh, we took our institution slash program's mission statement and uh, utilized that uh, to come up with those attributes that that we're looking for. We, we're looking at uh, productivity, but also uh, reliability, resilience to some extent. Um, and then also uh, because Loma Linda is a religious affiliated institution, not to say that we're looking for if they're religious, but, you know, if do they have uh, would they fit in that in that um, environment? Um, and so it, it is important to demonstrate that they um, have an interest in taking care of the whole person, uh, mind, body, spirit. And, and that's what I mean by, you know, having that religious component as well, too. So uh, so I think that's how you can try to uh, take away some of that by, uh, un, uh, unconscious bias as, as much as you can. Yeah, I would add that I'm, I'm a huge fan of the structured interview. I think it's a it's a win win. You it's easier for your faculty mm -hmm. to come in. I've been in both unstructured interviews and then been a part of the change to structured interviews. And the real benefit also is that you can take as much time as you want to create these interview questions and you can get outside consult. We're from a new medical school. It's an underserved region. There's not a lot of resources or experts in, in DEI. So we can write our questions and even get outside consult, consult on the quality of the questions. Are there biases that we haven't thought of? And so I think it's, it's, it's a really great and accessible thing for, for any type of program to, to start. The last thing that we do, at least with the behavioral-based questions, is we actually have like these anchors associated with it. And so a lot of times you get this score sheet, one through five, one through 10, and you just kind of circle a number that exactly. makes you best feel like, oh, I think this applicant was a two, right. or two or two or four, whatever. Um, and so with these unstructured you know, answers, um, so we ask them very specific questions, right? Like, you know, for reliability. And then we actually give examples of what a one would be or what a two would be. And so then that way it's like, we call these anchoring. And so that way, like you're circling really like the behavior is very much similar to the milestones right. that we have. It's just <laughs> like, right. it's not just That's a right. five and we're not just all. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that helps us at least for inter um, interviewer reliability, um, trying to get that same um, score, that scoring for each you know, applicant. And I'm by no means an expert on this, so feel free to correct me. But in my reading in preparation for this, um, I saw what was recommended as some of the benefits of the structured interview is it just decreases kind of some of those personal questions, things that actually have nothing to do with their ability to complete the job, but could pe put people on edge or make people feel marginalized. Um, and then also reduces some of the, you know, I have a connection with you. We chat about something that has nothing to do with medicine. Then I think you're great because we both went on vacation in the same place or something. Yeah, that affect heuristic, I think, mm -hmm. uh, right? And and so that's something that, um, um, it, like exactly you said, oh, well, gosh, I like you a lot because you went hiking and I love hiking. And so instead of giving you a five, I'm gonna give you a seven, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, that's one way to kind of um, decrease some of that unconscious bias uh, that that we all have, you know? And because, you know, I remember early in my career, uh, going on doing conducting interviews and saying oh man i really like this person and oh because you know why was that 
uh, well, well, it's because they like softball like I do, and, you know, and, and um, but what about how they do the job? Well, I didn't get to ask those questions, yeah. right? So, so I think it's a great way. To, I, I, uh, it, it, the structure interview is a good way to help uh, minimize uh, uh, some of those biases. And Tony, I, you and your workshop highlighted that you, um, at your program, specifically ask a question around inclusivity. Um, is that something that a lot of programs are doing, and, and how has that been going for your program? So at least when we're thinking about like how we ask those questions, we really want um, people to know too, like when they're interviewing, that this is important to us. Um, and so we've worked on you know some different questions um, here and there, and, and really just the idea is asking like you know what's your what's your understanding of how you know DEI is related to the overall success of a program, um, or how have you you know really contributed in the past, or do you plan to contribute? Um, I think we all agree that you know. DEI is like an everyone's job. Um, and so just, it's not enough to, like we said earlier, just to be aware of it. It's just like, what are we all doing? It's really understanding that commitment of like how much foresight or forethought have you put in to like, you know, this is important. This is important to the future of medicine. One thing I was wondering is within those structured interviews and specifically kind of the inclusion questions or focus or questions focused around DEI, do you all provide your faculty with um, kind of a script you know, or kind of training around. And this is how you say, we now have standardized interview questions. I will now be asking you the first standardized interview question and kind of launch into it. Or is there a more kind of free format, but also trying to, you know, avoid what Sunny was just saying, where it's like, well, you had the same opportunities I did. So therefore, I love you. And let me talk about the, you know, skiing that you went on or whatever it was. How do you all do that faculty development piece about how to actually say the words and use, you know, your 30 minutes or your 20 minutes, however much you're given? wisely yeah i can start so so uh we have an email that comes out (laughs) that's associated (laughs) with the applicant and then just in there we have like some reminders so we actually have like a little guide sheet that says here are the four values that we have here are some example questions and then the anchors that are associated with it we we want the applicant to get to know us too and to get to know the program and provide that you know comfort so that they can ask questions and so we don't like right after the right out the gate just like start asking really hard questions we usually kind of ask a lot of those you know tell me why you're interested in medicine how did you get interested in our program um and then we kind of just let it happen naturally and then and then sometimes i'll i'll say like very point blank wash you one of our values is teamwork um i'd really like to learn more how how you work on a team can you tell me an example and then I'll kind of open it like that. Um, and then that way I can you know, share with you my values as well as like, hey, by the way, we're, I'm, I'm getting to the standardized questions, but without actually saying, you know. I'm getting to the standardized yeah. questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think back to that earlier piece about trying to be as transparent as possible, that's information you can definitely include on that email to the applicants, right? Not only what time, you know, whether you're on Zoom or, or what technical things they need to prepare for, you can also say, um, we will be employing, you know, standardized interview questions as an effort to reduce implicit bias. And that kind of does two birds with one stone, right? You're giving them the instru- instructions, but also highlighting your commitment to, to inclusivity. Yeah, and uh, very similar to Tony, we have an email that I send out uh, mm-hmm. and um, in in, but I also kind of remind them uh, when I do my little spiel in the beginning with all the applicants together uh, that this is what's going to happen. But I, I, I leave it up to the individual faculty to some extent to 
how, how they started off. And, um, but as long as they hit those questions, uh, and, and I think that's, that's what's important. Because, uh, you know, I, when we talk about it in our workshop, how uh, while structured interviews are great for eliminating uh, or, or decreasing bias, um, it can be perceived negatively by by applicants because it'll be it could be seen as too rigid, right? And so, um, and they may come away thinking, "Oh my gosh, wow, that's kind of really, you know, blah interview or something like that." And so, so we do have to kind of balance that out a little bit. And so, so that's why we we do allow some freedom of how to start things off, and then as long as they are able to get to those questions that we want asked, um, you know, th I think that's okay, if that makes sense. So, but that's, that's, and that's what we instruct our faculty in our, in that big email, so. Yeah, it's a lot to ask a faculty to like establish a connection, right. <laughs> be likable, right. and then ask them all these questions right. and. Right. right. Especially via an email faculty yeah, development. Right. Like, <laughs> I need you to learn right. these things, that's but right. through written word, like yeah. not necessarily meetings or kind of, you know, trainings to do that. Yeah. And getting back to our case, Chelsea, um, Sylvie has been reading about this and she's surprised to see that blinded interviews are probably better at improving reliability in interviewing. So not allowing the interviewers to see the applicant scores or application materials. Um, what are some of the pros and cons of having interviewers blinded to that information? Well, Sylvie would be in good company. I think a lot <laughs> of people are surprised and hesitant to to employ this tactic. But it is um, a, a great way to further reduce the biases, just very similar concepts to the structured interview. So um, like you mentioned, blinding, just as far as definitions, just means withholding part of the application. So you can determine that, you know, based on the comfort of your program and your leadership, do you want to just blind the scores or blind the medical school or blind both of those? And it doesn't have to be everybody's, so it's not that all interviewers have to be blinded, but the AAIM does recommend at least one blinded interviewer. And what that does really, one of my favorite ways to think about it is to actually think about what happens when we're unblinded, so, so the regular review. What tends to happen is you review your CV, we've already brought up some of these things, right? You see, oh, they're a biker too, or we have the same hometown. These little biases start to come up and you start to either develop a positive or a negative impression. And then we tend to use the interview to just confirm that impression that we already developed. And so we're, if we're unblinded, we're not really, we're less likely to seek new objective information in the interview. So it really helps us just make the interview truly what the interview is about. So understanding those attributes that we're trying to assess or, or getting experiences that, that they've been through. So it, it really fits nicely with the structured questions and has some of the same um, purposes. Cons, it's similar to the structured questions, it can sometimes be perceived as applicants as, you know, well, they didn't ask me anything about my CV, right? Or say you ask them, tell me about a hardship that you've overcome. And perhaps their personal statement was all about this this life-altering hardship. And then so they may feel, well, they didn't even read my personal statement. Obviously, I've overcome X, Y, and Z. So it is very important to explain that and the reason behind it, just like you do with the structured interview. If I can add, um, so uh, getting to the point of, uh, of blinding scores and application, uh, we actually did a study several years ago that proved that. Um, and it was really interesting uh, because 
I was uh, I was the control group because at that time, uh, I and uh, our APDs reviewed the applicants' applications, provide the scoring for you know scores and uh, letters of recs and things like that, um, and then we also did some of the interviews. So we mm-hmm. took that and we showed that for those of us that saw those scores, we were unconscious bias and scored better or worse depending on their step two scores, for example. Mm-hmm. And so uh, based on that, uh, we blind all of our interviews to their applications except for their CV and personal statement uh, so that they can, uh, so the interviewers can get a sense of who they are, uh, but without knowing how they did in their you know, MSPEs or step one, step two, et cetera. Um, and the first few years uh, we had some pushback from our faculty. They were used to saying, well, mm-hmm. how do I know how, how much I like them if I don't know their test scores? Mm-hmm. And and we told them that's exactly why we don't want you to know mm-hmm. their test scores uh, for that reason. And and it's very, very it's been very interesting to see that um, when they don't have their test scores, and of course I, I will have seen them all, um, when, as we, we debrief, it's interesting that it doesn't, it no longer correlates with their test scores or their if they're AOA or something like that. So, so I think it's, uh, it's been actually really helpful to, to do that, actually. And for those of you who are doing kind of the blinded interviews, again, this might be an, you know, a noob question, but do you all say, and I'm your blinded interviewer? Or like, you know, I have not looked at, Tony, your CV or your personal statement. And so when I ask you about this hardship, it's not because I'm being a punk. It's because I literally have not read about it. So is there kind of messaging to the applicants so that they know about what to expect there? I think that is really critical. And I think it's so important that it needs to be in that live presentation, not just in the email app, you know, email instructions. So our current structure is that we have one unblinded. So one person that will intentionally ask follow-up questions from the CV. You know, I saw this research project that's so interesting. Tell me more about it. Or I saw your community service. What did that mean to you? So those appropriate follow-up questions from aspects of their application. And so we will announce, you know, Dr. So-and-so is um, unblinded or, you know, we'll explain it more thoroughly, but let them know that one will be asking and has reviewed the full CV while the others are using our structured process to assess um, other aspects of their, of their application. Yeah, I let them know in the in the morning briefing uh, that you know our interviews are blinded to everything except their personal name and CV. So, um, and I, I tell them, you know, it, it, it may seem like they don't know your entire application, and it's because they don't, they don't, and so so they know that going into it um, uh, as they go into those interviews. So I, again, transparency. Well, I guess maybe we can kind of we've spent a lot of time on the prep before selection and recruitment, and we've spent some time on the actual interview day. Um, what happens after that? Maybe uh, Tony and Sunny, I'd love to hear from you all. How do we improve our um, inclusion within the post-interview season? Kind of the communication that happens, um, further promoting equity in that very important and time-limited uh, season. So um, I, I would say that uh, I'm probably not an expert at the inclusion part of the post-interview day process, but I think um, the for lack of better saying, the fairest uh, or the more unbiased way is to um, essentially tabulate all those scores that you've had on the, on the, your interview days 
and maybe come up with whatever magic formula that you decide to come up with at your program and use that as kind of your uh, initial rank list. And then after that, perhaps making uh, potential uh, adjustments based on uh, what you may want to see in uh, in in the uh, diversity and equity and inclusion, but but I worry about that too a little bit, right? Because then there there is that potential for uh, that that bias as well too, um, and so um, but that that may be one of the at least the first thing to start with is to you know at least have that quote unquote magic formula to to populate your initial rank list and then make adjustments based on what your uh, committee decides is important. And when you say magic formula, do you mean like 20% of the decision is the interview and 50% is the Correct. application, Correct. 20% is the test score? Correct. Okay. And what, whatever it is that the your your committee slash faculty decide is important. So, uh, and of course it may be different, right? Because for example, um, at one place, research may count, account for 40% and, you know, test scores uh, 10, 20% and or 30% and the remainder of the interview. Um, for us, for example, our uh, interview, uh, because it includes other parts, including mission alignment and um, and response behavior-based questions, et cetera, um, it, 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 uh, the interview itself will account for about 40, 45% of our total score, composite score, with the rest uh, uh, being comprised of, you know, MSPE and your letters of rec and your uh, community activities and research activity, uh, test scores, et cetera. So, so just whatever decide what your faculty decides would be important. Um, that's how you would come up with that magic formula. And are you messaging? Are you both messaging that um, to the interviewees when they're there? Kind of whether it's on Zoom or in person. I think we're all doing Zoom at this point. But um, you know, are you saying and the way we weigh this whole process for you is that we do value research at you know sixty percent or forty percent, and the interview is. X, Y, Z percent. Is that also part of the transparency piece or is that not mentioned? Uh, for us, we haven't mentioned that. Um, and so I'd have, I'd, now I'd you have. think about, uh, was that? <laughs> now, you now I have, yeah. now I have, that's right. And so, uh, so yeah, so we haven't had uh, done so in in the past and uh, admittedly maybe is something we should think about a little bit more, um, you know, putting more effort into as well. I don't know if, if that's something you do as well. It's uh, nice is that like my role in the program is it's not the program director, so <laughs> I don't have that, you know, that latitude. Um, at least um, the way it works at our program is that we each have like our own roles in scoring. Um, and so what's nice is that I do all my scoring, and then it goes to the program director, and then they do their calculators. Um, when we are going through each of the applications, um, we don't have we don't necessarily like assign like you have to reach. Um, like a percentage point of each category. Um, people can score points in different ways. Um, and then, you know, faculty members can comment on things that are very specific. Um, thinking about, you know, the, the whole idea of like fit versus culture ad. And so like, oh, this application um, and during the interview, like if both of them are kind of pointing towards like a culture ad kind of mindset, someone that is not just going to, you know, be more of the same of what we have, but also, you know, contribute something different. Those applications usually get flagged, um, and then like they go under a different review um, in addition to the normal standardized. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of what's nice is that like you know that for general faculty, we're not like really like 
handpicking like this one versus that one. It really kind of goes down to score base and then gets sent to like um, a smaller group of people for them to kind of sift through all of the comments. Um, the other thing that we do is we just, we don't talk to any of the applicants after the interview. Um, and so I think those are all AIM recommendations for post-interview communication. Um, but we do let them know, like, here are the people, if you have very specific questions about this, that, or the other. Often our chief residents um, will answer a lot of those questions. Um, but then any of the programs that we have, we always have the information so that those applicants can reach out. Um, and then we have, a, like, a very nice way of, like, writing in the email, like, by the way, nothing of what we say makes any impact in your, in your um, you know, our ranking decision for you. Um, and we like say that kind of out front, like I'm specifically here to answer your question and I hope this helps you make a better informed decision, um, which is nice for me because I don't see like the final rank list, you know, so I can better give them information that they're hoping for. And, and I think that's a great point because uh, I, I tell them at, uh, I, I tell them personally at the very end of the interview day, exactly that, that we do, you will not hear from us, uh, but if you have questions, please let us know. And we also let them know the reason you don't hear from us is because of the AIM recommendations so that they don't feel like, well, they're, they're not interested in me or not anything like that. And so I think that is important to kind of really point out as well, too. It's hard sometimes to convince um, applicants that you interviewing is thank you enough from us. Like, that is our thank you. Thank yes. you for spending the entire yes. day with us and learning That's about right. our program. Yes. That is exactly right. Um, and so we don't know what to do with all the thank you emails or the thank you cards. And so we just thank you for being here <laughs> is all we need. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, I, I tell them, uh, you know, uh, don't send any, any thank you emails, notes, and th things like that. But I do have the caveat that, however, you train like I was by my mom to always send a thank you note after the interview, go ahead and do so, but don't expect a response unless you have questions. And, yeah. and so that's that's kind of our caveat. I know it becomes one of those like, no, you hang up. Because right. like I, <laughs> right. I have also received those thank you right. emails and I'd be like, no, thank you for spending <laughs> your day with us. And they're like, no, thank you for sharing your experience. And I'm like, we have to end. This, yeah. <laughs> this email exchange has gotten too long. It's become like my, my trip patient messages. Um, why is, are there any other ways that y'all have thought about with your programs about how to improve kind of that post-interview time or anything that we haven't mentioned in terms of, kind of promoting equity, especially in that time. Um, so one of the things that uh, that we talk about uh, is actually structuring the talk within your selection committee as well, too, uh, wh whoever that's made of. And what I mean by that is instead of having a free-for-all, uh, and I have to admit that's how ours used to be, where you know someone said, oh, I recognize this person. Oh, why are they number so-and-so? No, move them way up, you know, or... Oh, I'm not sure about this person. The other uh, areas to focus on is maybe what your um, historical cut lines are. So let's say your typical, you know, you typically finish at number, and I'm making up here, 180, 200. Then in that region, you may have some discussion because that makes makes some difference. But if, you know, there would be no, if, if let's say your, your program never finishes above 150, then essentially everyone above 150 is a number one choice, essentially. So so there's not really a whole lot of need to talk about those. But uh, so so maybe focusing on either uh, the very top, the very bottom, and maybe around your cut line, uh, uh, your bubble. So, so that's maybe a, a one of the time to do it. And then the other part is to, um, 
ideally designate someone in the committee to be the the, the center, if, if you will. So, um, because I think if someone um, decides that, hey, we really need to move this person up, move this person up, um, ideally to kind of uh, promote some of that, uh, to minimize bias, I should say, um, is to have someone who say, well, why should we move this person up? Uh, and in fact, maybe is there a reason that we should move them down or provide an alternate, if that makes sense. So, um, but, uh, so that's one way that I think to kind of help with that end of post-interview selection process. Um, Tulsi, could you give us some main take-home points for our listeners? I think a real take-home point is, you know, we, we always want to do what, what saves time and what's free. And at least having one blinded interviewer is a really easy to accomplish um, take-home point for your program. And so I really encourage everybody to, to bring that back and give that a try. Amazing. And anything that you'd like to plug, anything you're working on or especially proud of that we should be keeping an eye out for down the pipeline? Oh, thank you. I, I wish um, I had more personal things, but I, I really have benefited from the from the AIM guidelines from 2022, and so I would plug those and um, thank everybody that that worked on them from the AIM. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks, thank you. Mm-hmm. Any yeah. take home points? Uh, yeah. So I think uh, one of the take home points for me would just be like really thinking about what does diversity mean to your program, um, and really thinking backwards about you know what is your makeup. What demographic information do we want to look at? Um, and like then using that, you know, baseline data, or whatever you have to then inform kind of like other practices that you want to do and thinking, you know, not so much only gender or only race, but also thinking about other things like sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, also thinking status like international medical graduates um, and thinking about, you know, uh, people with disabilities who are also underrepresented and at, you know, like a medicine level and thinking about how people from different backgrounds contribute to your program. And to really think about like, when you say diversity, like what do you actually want from that? And it's really like you, you, you're really hoping for um, not just a diverse class, but people with lots of experiences who build each other up, um, who will impact the community, will also continue, you know, your, 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 uh, your institution's mission of, you know, making things better for the world, right? So it's just like thinking about like, what is it really that you're looking for um, before you just start setting numbers to different metrics? That that really brought it back to the why, which I love. I mean, we had a lot of amazing tips, but that really brought it back home of like, why are we doing this? Why is this important? And yeah. And Sunny, what about take home points for you? Yeah, I, I, I think um, uh, I think Tony did a much better job uh, talking about the inclusion and diversity aspect of it. And I think from my standpoint, my ta- main take home points would be how to minimize some of the biases that may go along and the actual processes. And so um, I... Uh, Again, I'm a very big believer in blinding most, if not all, of your actual interviewers to test scores. Uh, but again, depending on, I really like what Chelsea uh, mentioned, and that is having one who's blind, one's unblinded. Um, in our case, uh, just with our faculty, uh, it was much better for us to have them all be blinded instead. And so, our um, so I would really encourage that aspect of it as well to uh, to really blind uh, to uh, to that test score to the 
um, MSPE um, uh, for the actual interviewers for those kind of other attributes that you're looking for, because uh, simply because we have shown that it's it, it will bias your your scores, if you will. So uh, so that's probably one other big thing. Um, and then really encourage kind of this uh, a little bit more of this structure process as we talk uh, at the at the end uh, of the post interview uh, selection process because um, because if you don't it it then turns into who debates better um, and and that may not necessarily make the better resident uh, for your program necessarily so uh, so those would be my kind of main take home points uh, from this. Awesome. Well, anything you want to plug? Anything from the Alliance? Anything you're working on? So I'm really excited with some of the work that we're doing with OutMed and, and trying to create a more inclusive environment at WashU. Um, I think it's always interesting to, to think about, you know, like, yeah, we're WashU. A lot of people think we have this. You know, well, obviously, we have this very big name, a lot of research. Um, but also thinking about, like, you know, I want to make sure that people here are thriving. I want to make sure that they do belong. And so a uh, lot of work coming out, making sure that, you know, this population is is recognized and taken care of. So so I think my my plug is uh, to uh, continue to encourage those who are able to to, to attend these meetings uh, for for, you know, making these connections, uh, hearing from these wonderful speakers. And uh, I learned a lot even from today. And so I'm, I'm hoping to take some of this uh, back to our institution as well, too. So really put in that plug for, uh, for uh, AIM and to uh, for this uh, podcast as well, too. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. Yes, great work. <laughs> Well, Ira, that was so fun to sit down in person and get to talk with um, these three great doctors about their workshops today and just really think more deeply about interviewing and how to improve inclusivity. What take-home points do you have? Uh, Molly, so many. I was mostly uh, just kind of pausing to reflect on the fact that so many things of what they were saying, I need to take home back to uh, our institution and just kind of See if we can shake things up. And I think the one thing that Chelsea talked about a lot um, was kind of the blinding of the interviews. And even if there is a way to blind to a part of the uh, the application, maybe just the test scores, just the MSPE, kind of what um, that might introduce into the interview or maybe um, remove the introduction of bias into the interview. What about you? Uh, yes, I, I mostly do faculty interviewing and I, you know, in doing this episode, felt a little cringeworthy about all of the best practices that we are not yet following, but I feel optimistic that we can improve things. Thanks to sharing our, our best practices. Totally um, agree. Yeah, I think with the blinding, I mean, like Chelsea mentioned, it's such a low bar thing. You know, it doesn't cost anything. It actually saves time for the interviewer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's something that seems very doable to put into action. So I think that's an amazing one. Um, yeah, so many things. I, I loved how Tony really brought us back to the, the importance of defining what diversity means for our institution and defining what our goals are around that. Um, because that really takes us back to like, what specific attributes are we looking for in our applicants and how are they going to advance our mission statement? Well, the other thing that you just reminded me of, Molly, that I really want to highlight is I was blown away by the cheer percentages that Chelsea mentioned in terms of international medical grads. It's also very personal because two of my parents, two of my parents, my two parents, our international medical grads. And it just says something about kind of who are, who the workforce is and who's taking care of historically marginalized um, communities as well. So I think asking the question, just like you were saying, asking the why, asking why aren't we more um, inclusive of IMGs? Why are we not changing our practices to highlight kind of the role of IMGs uh, in our interview and in selection, I think is going to be really important. 
This has been another episode of our Curbsiders miniseries, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine for supporting us at this conference here today. Thanks, Aim. Yay! A thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams from the Curbsiders for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Thank you to Podpaste for editing our audio and supporting the podcast. Also to our social media team, Andrew DeLatte on Instagram and John Ung on Twitter. Until next time, I'm Dr. Molly Hoytlein. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A reminder that most episodes, though not this one because of our quick turnaround, um, is, are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. And I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowska. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment. Yay! Yay. <laughs> mm.